I want to begin reading. Our reader is out, and instead of me getting someone else, I'm going to go ahead because it's a little bit of a, a tricky passage here, and I want to read maybe jumping around just a bit. Uh, and immediately, well, first of all, look at, uh, uh, well, yeah, well, let's just begin with verse 22. And immediately, Jesus constrained, interesting word, we're going to get into that in a moment, his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him to the other side of the Sea of Galilee while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the crowd away, he went up into a mountain to pray, and when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was in the middle of the sea and was in the middle of a mess. Uh, the waves were tossed, the wind was contrary. Now, that's an interesting word, and we're going to look at it in a minute. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus uh, came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were troubled. One of them said, it's a ghost. Now, little s spirit means it's a ghost. Uh, and they cried out for fear, but immediately Jesus said, uh, don't be, a, uh, be in good cheer, don't be afraid, uh, it is I. Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, and that's not the if, uh, if prove it, it's, if it's really you, I know it is, bid me come to you. And Jesus said, come on. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and began to sink. And he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately, Jesus stretched forth his hand, caught him up, and said to him, Man, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? When they were come to the ship, the wind ceased. And then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, It really is true. You're the Son of God. I love this story. And I love it for several reasons that I'm going to share with you this morning. But the title of the study is uh, what I'm calling What a Walk. If you'll remember, uh, a few months ago, uh, I, Steve asked me periodically to teach, and so I started a series on living uh, naturally in the supernatural. We were talking about how all of life is a miraculous thing. The natural is as important as the supernatural because Jesus is Lord of all. And then I told you I'm just going to continue in that by dealing each time I speak for the next oh, year or so, I guess, whenever I do, I'll be dealing probably with a miracle. The first one was last time, John 2, changing the water to wine. Now, today we're going to deal with a miracle of Jesus, uh, not his miracle of walking on the water because that's a little understandable, but it's the other guy in that story, Peter, and his walking on the water that we're going to look. It's pretty miraculous. Anything good that happened to Peter was pretty miraculous, to be honest with you, and we're going to see why this morning. Now, I'm going to give you just a little bit of backdrop so you'll uh, get the idea of where we're coming from. First of all, the context. You'll notice in verse um, 20, uh, they had just filled up 12 baskets left over of the 5,000 men, verse 21 says, besides the women and children who had been fed by five loaves and two fish and had 12 basket loads left over. Now, man, that's the way I like to see groceries done. Uh, that, that's really good. 
But notice it says, and straightway Jesus constrained them. Now, <clears throat> when you think of uh, the word constrained, you need to realize that it, in the Greek language, has more to do with arguing than it does anything else. Anybody here ever watch the British Parliament when they debate? I have never seen such a bunch of babies in all my life. I mean, they argue like a bunch of fourth graders, you know. But that's really the word that's here in the original language. Uh, there was, I don't mean that the, the disciples were arguing with them, but they were kind of resisting it a little. And Jesus constrained them. And what that word means is, uh, now, you know the reason Jesus was telling them, get in that boat immediately and get on the other side? It wasn't because he'd watched Weather Channel and had a pre-storm report. That was not what he was doing. John chapter 6 is the only passage that tells us why he immediately forced them to get in a boat and to go on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And it was because they wanted to make him king. That's what John says in his sixth chapter, I think verse 5. Um, they wanted to make him king. And, of course, Jesus, knowing the heart of man, knew how his disciples might respond to that, so he decided to get them on the other side so they wouldn't be tempted. Um, <clears throat> but not only context, I want you to notice the conditions, because in verse 24 it says that the winds were, um, uh, let me read it for you, the winds were contrary. Now, that doesn't mean much in English, contrary, my Wife occasionally says, I'm a bit contrary. Not, not often, but sometimes she says that correctly, so I might add. But the Greek word for contrary is a whole lot more than that. In, in fact, I think the way we would probably have to interpret that word is to mean hostile, uh, almost like a uh, F4 tornadic wind. You do know that uh, Fujita, was the guy's name in 1971 who came up with the F categories. In fact, it's because of his last name, Fujita. And so he had F zero to six. Zero meaning it wasn't anything. F one, two, three, increasing. F six is unbelievable. Well, this would have been about an F three or a four. The winds were boisterous. The waves were uh, hostile to the ship. And remember, they were in the Sea of Galilee. What you may not know is the Sea of Galilee is the lowest uh, freshwater lake on the planet. It's uh, 700 feet below sea level and is nestled in a couple of mountain ranges so that the winds, and I don't know how to tell you that with technical terms, but the upper winds hit the warmer lower winds and all at once in an instant storms can come up and that's what happened. Uh, but I want you to notice that there were only two characters mentioned, Jesus and Peter. So while the disciples uh, had something proved to them, it was really Peter that I think we're to see in the Matthew's uh, account of it anyway. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at what uh, insight we can gain by looking, first of all, at the other man. Now, there was Jesus, 
We expect that of him. We have a little more historical context, reading scripture. We know who he was and how he lives and all of that. But it's the other guy. His name is Peter. Now, I've got to be honest with you. And I think I told you this when I dealt with John 13 about a year ago when Jesus uh, was washing the disciples' feet and Peter said to him, Lord, you're never going to wash my feet. And Jesus said to him, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you'll have no fellowship with me. Oh, Peter said, well, then don't just wash my feet. Well, give me a bath. You know, That's the kind of guy Simon Peter was. He was a rough guy. He's a little bit my hero. I like him. I really do. He's one of my favorite guys in all of Scripture. He reminds me of a fellow that I read about who got converted and uh, he... You know what, here's what, let me just read it to you. He said, uh, uh, I, I got converted and I went out and that night got drunk celebrating what God had done for me. <laughs> now, that's not exactly the testimony you give on a, you know, on a, give on a Sunday morning, especially if you happen to be in a Baptist church, a little different there. I mean, they take that stuff seriously. And, uh, so uh, that's the kind of guy that Peter was. He was uh, actually, there was nothing soft or cuddly about him. Uh, he was just a guy who blew it nine ways from Dallas fairly regularly. He suffered from foot and mouth disease continually, opening his mouth and talking when he should have been quiet, keeping his mouth shut, not saying a word when he should have been talking. He was always messing up. In fact, I use the phrase, he blew it spiritually nine ways from Dallas more times than you can imagine. Now, here's my question. If that's true, and he is that kind of guy, how in the world could God use a man like that? Boy, you can use me. Uh, okay, here it is. Do you know God using you or me has nothing to do with how good we are or how bad we've been. Has nothing to do with it. He works in our life to the level of our appetite for him. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after, and the King James says righteousness, but in the original language, the definite article is before it. It's talking about the righteousness of God, a person, the Lord Jesus. So what it's saying is, uh, blessed are those, oh, the delight in life of those who have an insatiable hunger, appetite to know the Lord Jesus. Now, the reason is because God works to the level of our appetite, spiritually. If an individual or a church ever gets really hungry for the Lord, watch out. He's going to do something. On the other hand, if an individual or a church ever gets to the place where it's ho-hum and it really doesn't matter much anymore about this Jesus stuff, watch out because he's not going to work. And by the way, the same thing is true in a marriage. 
Same thing is true in a family. Same thing is true, in my opinion, in a nation. He works to the level of our appetite. And one thing you can say for Simon Peter, he had a hunger for the Lord. One of these guys said, look at that, it's a ghost. Peter said, no, Lord, if it's you, bid me come to you. Jesus said, come. And what did that guy do? He climbed overboard. It dawned on me one day when I was studying about Simon Peter, not another one of those rascals got out of that boat. Only Simon Peter. Now, I know Peter began to sink. And I know Jesus had to lift him up and was a bit, uh, you know, uh, disappointed in him when he said, oh, why do you have such small faith? But will you always remember that Peter walked back to that boat hand in hand with Jesus? There was an evangelist in Baptist uh, world that I came out of and came from to hear, uh, Jack Taylor, who used to always say, Jesus, uh, you can always walk hand in hand with Jesus if you're willing to get wherever he really is. And I love that. And that's, that's what was different about Peter. So don't ever think that your failures or your mess-ups will keep God from working in your life. Ladies and gentlemen, that's just not biblical. And by the way, don't ever think that because you repeatedly read your Bible daily or keep a quiet time or go to church or do all the religious stuff, because you do that, God's going to work in your life. Now listen to me, because it isn't an automatic thing for religious things to be a hunger to know the reality of the Lord Jesus. See, Christianity is not what we do. Christianity is who Jesus is and all that he has already done and being the source of my life, I want to know more of him than I've ever known before. Does that make sense? So we'll get a little insight of this whole thing if we're willing uh, to look at that man, the other guy, Simon Peter. But I think we'll also gain some insight if we're willing not only to see the man, but to see the mess. This is verse 24. Look what it says. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And I've already told you about the storm on the Sea of Galilee and how it comes up. It did remind me when I was going through this of the only time I've taken a Mediterranean cruise, Mary couldn't go. And I took a group to Israel, only we decided to fly into uh, Venice, Italy, and to sail out of the port uh, in the Mediterranean Sea, and we sailed down to the port of Alexandria, uh, Egypt. And uh, honestly, uh, I may get the exact timing, uh, it was right after Menachem Begin and uh, the uh, Anwar Sadat had signed the peace agreement, for which later Anwar Sadat was assassinated by his own people, by the way. But it was a peace agreement, and for the first time, the, uh, Amer uh, not Americans, but uh, uh, tourists were allowed to sail from Egypt to Haifa. And I was on that first group that took his 
25 or so folks uh, on that big cruise ship. We sailed from the port of Alexandria, Egypt, having been down the Nile and into uh, the capital city. We sailed over to Haifa to spend days in Israel, okay? Uh, we had just started that trip down from Italy, down to the port of Alexandria, when a storm came up. Now, Mary, uh, because she couldn't come, it was a 15-day tour, and I'd never been away from her for that long in my life, haven't since then, won't ever. We're joined at the hips. We're Siamese at the hip. But she wrote me a letter for each day and made me promise that I would not open the letter until the day arrived. Well, you know when the day arrives in American mind. It's midnight. That's the next day. So I was up till midnight every day. One night, I was up in the middle of that storm. I was waiting to read this letter. There were 15 of them, you know, with that little red bow around it and all that kind of stuff. And I talked to the, to the uh, guys in charge and asked them if I could stay outside on the deck. They said, well, we're in the middle of the storm. Well, I wasn't in Category 4, but it was bad enough. And I said, well, I'd really like to. And he said, well, we'd have to cover you over with storm stuff, and we'd have to bolt your chair. And I said, hey, let's do it. So at midnight, when that storm was starting, I was reading that letter with a flashlight, okay? I don't know who was the stupidest, me or that captain, but I'm not sure either one made a good decision on that because that ship was really rocking. Now, that's the kind of mess that Peter and all those disciples were in, but really, that's not the mess I want us to see. The mess I want us to see is the fact that Jesus had told them to go across that sea at that time. In fact, he said, do it immediately. In other words, they were right smack dab in the middle of doing God's will when a horrendous storm came up. Have you ever been doing, as far as you know, the will of God and in the middle of doing the will of God, a storm almost overwhelm you, and you, you wonder, what in the world is happening? Now, I don't mean to be mean here because any cancer is terrible, okay? It is. And by the way, I might as well just say it. You can have lung cancer and never smoke a cigarette in your life. Lung cancer is not only for people who smoke, okay? But if somebody has smoked for 50 years and has lung cancer, it hurts. You, you pray for them and so on. But there's this sense of, oh, I wish he hadn't done that. You know, you know what I'm saying? I wish he hadn't done that. Uh, we heard of uh, in Tulsa yesterday with her kids, a woman on this little scooter, and she had her two little kids, and kids are not allowed on it. And uh, she was going down the road. I don't know how fast they go, 10, 12 miles an hour, whatever. And she accidentally had an, a, a wreck, and her little baby was killed. Now, that's terrible, but you want to, and I mean this kindly, but you want to kind of choke the mother just a little bit after you've hugged her neck and patted her on the back in her, in her loss. That's one thing, but it's a different thing when you have a guy who is a BSU assistant director at University of Oklahoma, and I was this pastor, and he ministered all over the country and was coming back from Dallas, Texas, and, and uh uh, near midnight one night, uh, a drunk uh, missed his 
side of I-35 and got on my, and head on with him and killed him instantly. And then what made it worse was just two or three years later, he had three teenage kids. The oldest girl was going to be getting married and two months before her wedding um, in Norman, Oklahoma, a guy on pot uh, missed his turn and hit her and killed her instantly. And uh, both of these people, right smack dab, as far as we know anybody's life and heart, in the middle of the will of God. I mean, that's tough. That's a mess, right? Let me, let me just say a little bit about that kind of mess, and I, I think it'll help us. Uh, first of all, if I understand this passage of Scripture correctly, the Scripture says Jesus told him to get into the boat and go to the other side of the sea. Now, did Jesus cause the storm to hit them? I don't think I would even go there. I don't think God causes bad things to happen to his children. You know what I'm saying? I think his love is far beyond that kind of description. But I do know this. He has the power and the ability to stop some things that once in a while I've questioned why he didn't stop. But you know, there's something comforting for me. I'm not saying it's true for everybody, but for me, something covering, comforting to me if I'm able to say, you know, he may not have done this, but he had to allow it to some degree for some purpose. That's comforting to me. There's another thing comforting to me is, and that's this. No matter how difficult the storm in the middle of it, Peter looked at the wind and he looked at the waves, you know. But Jesus came to him in the middle of it. Jesus came to those disciples in the, in the brunt of it. In other words, if we have our eyes open for the person of the Lord, even in the worst of circumstances, and I mean even when you're smack dab in the middle of his will, doing what you know to do for kingdom's sake, you'll be able to see him in a way you might not have seen him otherwise. And then, Daniel has always been a story to me. You know how his brothers hated him and his father was prejudiced over him and all that kind of stuff. Dysfunctional family, deluxe. They were going to kill him, decided they couldn't do that, so they dug a hole and going to leave him there and couldn't do that, so they sold him to the Egyptians, Potiphar's house and all. You know the story as well as I do. Years later, he's second in command. He has done seven years of harvesting in, in Egypt because he knew a famine was coming. He'd interpreted the, the dream, you know, Pharaoh's dream. And uh, the brothers came from the south, uh, from the north, uh, the land of Palestine, to get some food from Egypt. Everybody heard how much stuff they had. And so when they got there, they didn't recognize Joseph, their brother, as the one in charge. And he toyed with them just a little bit to see a little about them. And then they said, when they realized who it was, in chapter 45 of Genesis, oh, he's going to kill us for what we did. Joseph made this astounding statement. You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. He knew that I would be able to deliver many, many people. Now, that's nice to know. Here's the deal. You don't always, if ever, know that ahead of time. Generally, that's something you find out later. I even believe most of the whys on bad things that happen 
even when you're in the middle of God's will, most of the whys won't come until we stand before him. But the great thing for me personally is that in the middle of that storm, if best I know how to judge my own life, I want to be in the center of God's will and the storm comes anyway, then I can know he's permitted it for something. And if I look closely, I'll be able to see him and something's going to happen that's good in the middle of that. That's why he's there. And the real why of it, I may never know till I stand before him. But as far as I'm concerned, that's enough for me. Now, it takes some faith. It takes some faith to live that way, okay? But it doesn't matter how much faith you have because the question about faith is never how much you have. It's never the volume of faith. You know, oh, Lord, I want to have a great faith. Oh, this doesn't take a great faith. A little faith can change a mountain. Yeah. The object of the faith that we have is what's important. And it's the character of the one who is the sovereign controller of every event in human history, particularly kingdom kids. He's in charge of the events of our life. And we know his character, and I'm going to trust him till the day I see him, even if I don't have answers until then. And so I think we gain something if we see the man and if we see the mess, but then there is a little to be gained when we see the miracle. Now, the miracle is not Jesus walking on the water. I mean, that's a miracle, but that's expected. Everything he did was miraculous as far as I'm concerned. The miracle was Peter, Peter walking on the water. And I'm talking about the Peter who went out to get drunk right after he was converted. Oh, he didn't do that. But that's the way he thought. He would have put his arm around that boy and said, Atta boy, you're my kind of guy. That's the way fishermen are, you know. So how did Peter walk on top of his circumstances? Okay, I'm going to pull little Ann Landers on you. Now, you know, you know Ann Landers? Well, what you may not know, and I got to tell you this, I studied too hard for me not to give this to you. Uh, Epi Letterer is her name. Now, she called herself Ann Landers, but Epi Letterer is her name. And in 1953, she took over for the original Ann Landers who had just died in the Chicago Tribune, and she became Ann Landers, okay? Now, she had a twin sister, and her twin sister's name was Pauline Popo Phillips, you will know her as Abigail Van Buren, and she started a column called Dear Abby at exactly the same time. Ann Landers died in 2002, and they didn't do it anymore. Abby died in 2016. They're not doing it anymore, so I'm going to take their place this morning. I'm going to give you an Ann Landers or a Dear Abby about this thing of Peter walking on the water, okay? If you're going to walk on the water on top of the circumstances, the storms that come in your life, I've got a little Ann Lander, Dear Abby, advice. The first thing is this. <clears throat> Don't look at the storm. Don't keep your eyes focused on the storm. Look at verse 30. And when he saw the wind boisterous, he got afraid, and he began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. Well, my first thought is, Peter, why did you look at the wind? It sounds to me like he was halfway there. Why did he look at the wind? Don't 
Look at the storm. Now, I'm not saying don't see it. I'm not one of these who's going to deny reality. You know, if you say a negative word, then you'll, uh, that negative thing will happen. I'm sorry. Sometimes you got a belly ache and you just got to stay, my belly aches, and take care of it with Tums or whatever you take. But the point is this. You don't gaze on the circumstances. You may glance at them, but your gaze is to be on the Lord Jesus. Hebrew 2 says it best, and I'm going to talk about it this next hour at a church about six miles north of here where I'm preaching the morning service, uh, and that is looking off unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Looking off. In other words, our gaze is always to be on the Lord. We can glance at circumstances. Don't deny them. I mean, they're there. It's been, oh, man, what a win. Lord, I'm coming. If Peter, you know, that's faith. It's not denying the circumstances. It's having eyes for the reality of Jesus alone, okay? So don't look at the storm. Second thing I would say by way of some Ann Lander's advice is don't listen to the boat. Now, there's nothing in the Bible about what they said. But I've been a member of a church long enough I know what they said. And those 12 apostles in that boat, they were all a little bit of that formation, of that first gathering, that first group, okay? I know what they said. Uh, you know, what they said was something that I call Baptist stupid. <laughs> you know, here's what they, here's the, what they probably said. Peter, you know, here's Peter. He gets out, starts walking. Peter, Baptists don't do that. I'm telling you, now, I know Peter had to listen to the boat. Now, I'm, I know this is speculation. I'm not declaring here what the Scripture says. But I am telling you what Paul Burles speculates, knowing human heart like I do and no bunch in the boat, you know, I think they said, Peter, we don't do that. You know, don't listen to the boat. Or maybe they said, uh, this storm is God's punishment. Ever had anybody tell you that? That's Baptist stupid. That's just not reality. Now somebody says, but Brother Paul, don't you think that sometimes things happen? Well, of course, we reap what we sow. There are consequences to bad choices, consequences for sin. But don't ever think of anything that happens in your life as punishment. Why? Because if you think of the circumstance in your life as a punishment from God, then you have just extracted from the work of the cross. You have just diminished the work of the cross. You do know that what Jesus did on Calvary was all that was necessary for sin to be dealt with, right? He bore our punishment. Now, God chastens everyone that he loves. He disciplines, but don't read into that uh, punishment like, uh, I'm going to beat the daylights out of you because you didn't do what I wanted. That's not, now we human fathers do that, but the heavenly father doesn't. No. What it means is we reap what we sow, and he will even allow us to reap things that we would have not even thought about, but they're sown in the actions like Jonah winding up in the belly of the fish in the bottom of the sea. But the point is, God's not punishing his kids. And we are kingdom kids. The Lord Jesus bore that. 
Don't ever get the idea that God is ever mad at you. Did you know that all of the anger of God against sin was poured out on Jesus when he died on the cross? Somebody said, but wasn't he angry with Israel? Sure, it's an old covenant kind of way that they were trying to come to the reality of God. But the Lord Jesus is the final statement about the reality of who the Father is. And I'm telling you, when he died on the cross, God's wrath, divine holy wrath, not human anger, holy wrath against what would damage his children poured out on the one who bore it in the grace of God, you see? So he's never angry. with He's angry with the wicked every day. But when you're in Christ Jesus, you're no longer designated a wicked one. You're designated a saint. You say, well, Brother Paul, I act more like the wicked one than I do the saintly one. I know it. I know we do, don't we? But acting doesn't make anything real. In fact, if I acted married, would it make me married? No. Somebody declared us married 60 years ago, and we've acted like it since. What if I decided one day I'm going to act like I'm not married and go find me another woman? And I'd say to her, I'm going to act like we're not married. You know what marriage is? Well, big boy, you are married. You better act like it. You, you understand what I mean? So we may act wicked, but that doesn't mean it's a wicked person acting. It means it's a saint acting like what they're not. That's the definition of hypocrisy. A saint acting like what they're not. You, you see? And so what we uh, have to understand is it's not punishment. When circumstances happen, they're either in the purposes of God for development or for whatever we've looked at before, but the point is, he's not punishing you. Jesus bore that on the cross. He's never angry with you. His love is unconditional, and Jesus made that able to be poured out on us graciously. Where sin abounds, grace does so much more abound. Now, do we grieve him? Oh, yes. Do we break his heart? Absolutely. Is he grieved in his spirit when we act like a wicked one? Absolutely. But you do know that who you are is what the Father declares you to be. And you're loved. You're forgiven. You're accepted. You're his kingdom kid. And that's what we have to remember. So don't listen to the boat. Third thing I'd say, and I have to finish this really quick here. Third thing I'd say is this. Don't watch your feet. Now, can you imagine? Now, I don't know that Peter did this, but knowing the kind of guy he might have, looked down and said, whoa, look at that. Look how I'm doing. Wow. Kind of thrilled with himself. Then he started sinking. I don't know whether it's when he saw the waves or when he looked at his own feet and was proud of what he was doing. One way or another, he started sinking, okay? Now, I'm not saying don't look at your feet occasionally, see how you're doing. Of course you do. You want to check your pulse every once in a while, but don't forever be checking your spiritual pulse. It's like the little girl I told you about uh, a year ago. So I'll remind you. Nobody remembers it but me, and I forgot it, so I read it again. The little girl 
given a flower by her mother to plant. Oh, the girl was delighted. Went out and planted the flower. Mom said, now, be sure and water it, sweetheart. Be sure and water it. She watered it two or three days. The flower died. The little girl came in brokenhearted, weeping. Mom said, what happened? My flower died. I told you to water it. Oh, no, I did water it, Mama. Well, what happened? I don't know. I dug it up every day to see how it was doing. <laughs> well, folks, don't dig up your faith every day to see how it's doing. Trust the Lord that he's going to work in your life. You know, don't watch your feet. The one thing I'd close with is this. Do Focus on the only thing that matters, and that's the Lord Jesus himself. So whether it was calm water or stormy water, the only thing that mattered was being hand-in-hand with Jesus. Am I right? They got back on ship. And when they got on board ship, the storm stopped. And all those disciples fell on their face saying, Lord, you really are the Son of God. Ladies and gentlemen, there's no more confidence builder in our life and in the middle of a storm when we see Jesus, he may not tell us why it's come. He may not tell us what happened, you know, what's going to happen tomorrow. But if we're hand in hand, some way or other, there's a calmness that comes to our spirit and we're able to worship in the worst of circumstances. You really are the son of God. And that's good enough for me. His name was Corky Rose. He was 19 years old. I was called by his mother, uh, Zelma and Dale, his dad, before he shipped off to Vietnam. And they asked me to come and pray. It was Wichita Falls, and he was leading. He just graduated from Ryder High School. So we gathered in the front room, and we held hands, and we prayed. Corky went off to battle. He was there his year, was supposed to be coming home within 30 days, and they ground you last 30 days in that Vietnam conflict. They grounded. He was a gunner on a helicopter, and they grounded the crew, including him. But a chopper went down in battle, and they needed a rescue team, and they were all out. So Corky's group volunteered. A guy from, one of the guys from Ponca City was in that helicopter. And uh, they went in to rescue, only enemy fire hit them. And Corky and the crew went down, and he died less than 30 days before he was to come home. And I'll never forget his funeral. Um, I did the service. I'm the one that found his mom and dad to break the news. I... His dad, his mom had the news broken by people at the front door, but I had to track his dad who drove a white's auto truck. I had to track him down nearly to Amarillo to find him. And, and uh, anyway, that's a different story. When we did the funeral service, I closed it with this song because it was one of Corky's favorite. I'd found that out from Bimbo, his little brother. And uh, it's a chorus that we used to sing all the time. I'm not a singer, but listen to it. If I live or die, my only cry will be Jesus in me. Praise the Lord. Now, I don't know who didn't want me to sing, but... Uh, Lord. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to say the devil. I don't know, but anyway. If I live or die, my only cry is Jesus in me. Praise the Lord. Sometimes... That's the only thing that matters when the storms come. And the best you know, you've been living in the will of God. Does that make sense? Well, thank you for the opportunity of sharing with you. And uh, Steve will be back 
next week. And I think he booby-trapped the sound system, so I'd end <laughs> at 9 o'clock, and that's what I'm going to do. Hug five next before you go. God bless you. Get out of here. We'll see you in the worship service.